prophesied would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Jesus comes suddenly, and he's baptized by John, and he, through that baptism, is unequivocally established as the Son of God, the Messiah, God in the flesh. And you'll remember in verses 1 through 8, as we went through it, all of this signaled something tremendous, a change in the ages. And we'll see how Jesus, in these verses today, he couldn't be more explicit about this change. All right, so today, we're going to see how Jesus, I, I, I did a little foreshadowing to this last week, we're going to see how Jesus acts as the true Israelite, the true Israel. He relives the history of Israel. He does it perfectly, all to fulfill the law, to fulfill all righteousness. So with that then being fulfilled in Christ, he ushers in the kingdom of God. He proclaims the gospel. So in other words, Jesus completes the law, proclaims the gospel, and he is the reason that the ages change. And then as a result, he presents and proclaims a necessary response. So... Before we read the scripture, I realize there is a word that I think I need to define so we can all be on the same page. And that word, which permeates the Bible, is righteousness. What is righteousness? It's very common. We use it all the time. I've used it, even in these four weeks, probably a hundred times. Righteousness. Micah 6, 8 is very helpful in understanding what righteousness is. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. See, this is a great summation of what righteousness is. Righteousness is acting with justice. In fact, righteousness and the word justice are interchangeable. Often, uh, righteousness is often translated as justice. And justice means that not just that you want to see evil punished, but that you want to do good, to do right to those who are oppressed, to the poor, to the hurting, to the sick, to those who don't have a voice. Justice is to do right by all people. To love mercy means that you're quick to forgive. You give grace even when it's not deserved. You're generous with those in need. Even when it completely goes against common sense. That is to love mercy. And then do all of that humbly without seeking attention for yourself. Without seeking recognition. So this harmonization of justice and mercy and humility is righteousness. And we could go on with more about what righteousness means. But I think these three, right at the center of this, these three, which make up justice, are right at the essence of of who God is. God is righteous. So remember this definition today as we walk through the sermon. That's what righteousness is. Okay, I'm going to read not just our verses for today. I'm going to read starting in verse 1. Because these verses today don't make any sense unless we're remembering the context. Okay, Mark 1, 1. Follow along. And I'm reading from the ESV. 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for Christ and his work, for the way in which he completes righteousness. He is our complete righteousness. How grateful we are for that, Father, and how clouded our eyes are from that. Often would you, would you illumine our eyes so we could see it and know it, that Christ is our righteousness, and then live in total trust and dependency in him. Lord, guide us in this passage today. I pray you'd fill my mouth with your words. You'd fill our hearts uh, in such a way that we would readily accept what you'd have to say to us. And commit the time to you, Father. In Christ's name, amen. So verses 12 through 15. Last week I talked about how Jesus was the one to fulfill the law. He lived without sin. He lived without error. He lived perfectly righteous. He fulfilled the law. And therefore, he is known as the true Israel, the true Israelite. And we also saw, if you remember, in Isaiah 49, verse 3, which is a prophecy about the Messiah, this coming servant Messiah is called Israel. Jesus, the Messiah, is called Israel. You see, the law was meant for Israel. You could not be a Samaritan or a Canaanite or a Roman and be an Israelite. You had to have the law. The law and the nation of Israel were bound to one another. They're not separable. To, be, to follow the law, you have to be an Israelite. To be an Israelite, you have to follow the law. And the problem was, as you and I well know, Israel had a problem with following the law. All the law did for them was expose their sin, expose their shortcomings and their failings, and it was clear that no one was righteous according to the law, not even one, 
except that there was one. Jesus, the Son of God, the true Israel, the true Israelite, Jesus is the one who could fulfill the law. But not just an idea. This is not just some theological thing. Jesus did it in activity, in actuality, fulfilled the law. Everything, this is absolutely astonishing. Everything that he did, does, from his baptism to his 40 days in the wilderness to what he is saying when he leaves the wilderness and his life that follows, all of those activities are fulfilling the law. They are completing the law and achieving the destiny that God gave Israel. See, all of those things, his baptism, his 40 days in the wilderness, his message he proclaims, his healings, the ways that he goes about doing them, they are all mini-dramas of Israel's history. He is reliving Israel's history in one man. So we're going to go back to the baptism. We talked about baptism last week, Jesus' baptism. We're going to just touch on that again to see how it relates to Israel's history. And then from there, we're going to continue through his time in the wilderness and then what he says after that. So back to his baptism. Did you know that God baptized the nation of Israel? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4. I believe this should be up on the screen. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Israel was baptized in the Red Sea when the people were fleeing Egypt. The Egyptians, they were were leaving the land of bondage, going to the land of freedom. And notice how the text says that they were baptized into Moses. Well, in the Old Testament, Moses represented the law because the law was given through Moses. So Israel is baptized into the law. And then Jesus, when he is baptized, he is baptized under the law, but his is different. It's a little more peculiar. He receives a baptism, as we said last week, he receives a baptism of repentance for Israel, for their inability to live righteously. So Israel, through the Red Sea, was baptized by God in the law. Jesus baptized on behalf of Israel for their inability to live under the law. So Jesus, through this mini-drama of Israel's history, is fulfilling the law. Let's keep reading in 1 Corinthians 10 because there's another, another verse that comes in that, that is just amazing. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4 again, I'll add in verse 5. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. 
Where did Jesus go right after he was baptized? Into the wilderness. So two things to note here. Well, three, three really. The first is that during Israel's stay in the wilderness of Sinai, uh, Moses went on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days. And in, the, in those 40 days, he spent his time in the presence of God, receiving the law. There are 40 days. 40 days is a while. After a while, the Israelites began to wonder, is he even alive? And it's crazy to think about it. It's crazy to think about it. You just watched God part the Red Sea. And, and you've seen the mountain smoke and his thundering voice come from the mountain. And then Moses disappears for 40 days. So what do you do? Naturally, you make for yourself a golden calf. And that's what Israel did. They made for themselves a golden calf and they began to worship it. They were reverting back to the religion of their homeland, Egypt. It felt like their homeland. So one of the first things that Israel does in the wilderness is to forsake God and worship another God. Second thing that they do, after after some time they make it to the promised land and they begin to look into it and God says, I will give you the promised land. It is my promise to you. And they look into the promised land and they see the people there and they're afraid of them and they think that's never going to happen. They can't take the promised land. They're not strong enough. So they forsake God's promise to them. And then God, as a result, has them wander for 40 years in the desert until that generation of fearful people is totally dead. Save a couple. The whole time, in those 40 years, they're grumbling, they're ungrateful. So these three things is what Israel does in the wilderness. They forsake God and they worship another God, the golden calf. They reject God's promise. They don't trust him to deliver on his promise. And they grumble and they're ungrateful. Jesus goes into the wilderness He acts as the true Israelite. He fulfills Israel's destiny. And his outcome is altogether different. Let's read in Mark 1, verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So just as it was God who led the people of Israel into the desert, into the wilderness, it is God in the person of the Holy Spirit who leads Jesus into the wilderness. Just an interesting thought. It's actually, come talk to me afterwards if, this, if you would like to about this, but it's Jesus who is leading the people of Israel in the pillar to the wilderness. It's fascinating. So now it's God in the Spirit who's leading Jesus into the wilderness. So right after Jesus is self-identifying with sinners through baptism, he's driven into the wilderness. He goes there to face his arch enemy, the adversary, Satan, and to be tempted by him. Now our account in Mark of this temptation is the shortest account in the Gospels. The other Gospels elaborate on this a bit more. In their accounts, we learn that Jesus is tempted in three ways. 
Satan wants him to fall like Israel fell, and he tempts him in these three ways. Tempts him, one, to forsake God's promise. Two, to worship a false god, that is Satan. And three, to test God. You see, these are the three ways that Israel fell. Satan tempts Jesus in the same ways. Israel forsook their God. They worshiped the false God. They rejected the promise of God and believed they could not take the promised land. And they grumbled and they tested God with a constant ungratefulness. But Jesus rejects Satan in every one of these temptations by quoting the law, the law to Satan. In doing this, Jesus perfectly lives out the history of Israel in all righteousness, with justice and mercy and humility. Jesus is fulfilling Israel's history. Now here's a little bit of a parenthesis. You know I like to do parentheses, and you'll get one or two a sermon. Um, It's fascinating in this account of the temptation. If you look at verse 13... The second part of it, randomly, it says, and he was with the wild animals. What is that about, right? In fact, nobody can conclusively say what that's about. There's a lot of debate about what that is about. And honestly, there's some really bizarre ideas about what that's about. That's a weird way to say it. Anyway, I think that there is one possible explanation of this that is fascinating to me. So, remember who Mark is writing for? The Romans. The Romans, at this time, had an absolutely out-of-his-mind crazy leader. Can anybody think of who that was? Madman Nero. That's right. And Nero had it out for the Christians. And Nero was persecuting the Christians... um, to an incredible degree, and in one of the most spectacular ways in which he would persecute Christians and kill them is by throwing them into the arena with wild animals, right? He would throw them in there with lions or bears or wild boars, wild dogs, jaguars, tigers, the list goes on. He tried to be as creative as he could with animals that he would bring into the arena to shred apart the Christians. And you can imagine how that went for them. Horrific. Awful. So to live in Rome as a Christian, knowing that this could be your fate, that would be a scary thing. So Mark perhaps puts this in the passage to say Jesus also faced the wild. Because when he was in the wilderness for 40 days, totally exposed to the elements, totally exposed to any animals that might be out there. So this was a message to the Roman Christians of comfort. Christ experienced these wild animals that you may face. Don't know what I'm doing. So I think it was a message of solace for the Roman Christians and a point of interest for us that Christ faced everything that we could possibly face and did it and he did it 
And he gives us his strength to do it as well. This is a message to the Romans here. Okay, parentheses closed. Now, uh, perhaps a practical uh, thought here. This is not the point of our text today. But it is, uh, a, there's a lesson that we can get from Jesus' time in the wilderness. Because we all walk through difficult times. They seem like wildernesses to us. You know, it could be a spiritual time of wandering, a time of pain or sickness, a time of temptation. We find ourselves in the wilderness, in that kind of wilderness. What do we do? How do we try to get ourselves into a better situation? I think a lot of the time, we try to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, try to preach to ourselves all the things that we should be doing, all the ways that, how we don't mess up again, how we do it better next time, how we deal with the hurt, we cast off those who are weighing us down. We preach the law to ourselves so we do it better the next time. I think sometimes that's how we respond. Or... When we're in the wilderness, do we preach the gospel to ourselves? Do we trust in God that he loves us? He cares intimately for us. That even in these most difficult times that we all will walk through, God has brought us to that for his purpose. It's a good purpose. What is his plan for us in it? Do we look to God to see what his plan for us in it? Or do we grumble? So will you believe in his promises? Will you look to God to get through it? Will you hope in him that only God will give you love and peace and joy and comfort and freedom despite your circumstances? You rest in the promises of God. When Israel was finished with their time in the wilderness, when they were about to cross the Jordan and go into Israel and finally take the promised land, they rehearsed the law. And Moses stands before them and he rehearses the whole law. And from that we get the book of Deuteronomy. But when Jesus emerges from the wilderness, he does not come proclaiming the law. He comes proclaiming the gospel. So he's reliving the history of Israel again. But it's different now. There's a new message. It's not the message of the law. It's the message of the gospel. Let's read verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying... The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he's proclaiming a new reality for Israel, followed by a necessary response. The new reality is that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The response is to repent and believe. This is wildly offensive. The time is fulfilled. What is that, Jesus? What do you mean in saying the time is fulfilled? 
We got to go to the Old Testament. We got to see what they t- what what the prophets say about the time. The first place we're going to go is to Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 7 verses 2, 10 and 12. Now I've taken sections out of this chapter because they're using phrases and equating them to each other in this passage. I'll read it. And you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel. An end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Behold the day. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come. The rod has blossomed. The pride has budded. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon their multitude. The time that Jesus is saying is fulfilled is being equated with the day of the Lord, an end. Or, you might say, and others have said, the end time. It is a time of judgment, of God's wrath. When Jesus talks about the time that is fulfilled, he is talking about the time, the end time. The day of the Lord. So here's a logical progression. You can see that with a fulfilling, the time is fulfilled. With a fulfilling, there is a completion. Fulfilling means completed. With completion, necessarily, it means something is coming to an end. So this is the end time that Jesus is referring to. The people would immediately recognize these words. The time is fulfilled as being eschatological, as being referring to the end time, and they would immediately hear judgment and fury in that. This judgment and fury, though, would not come for another 40 years. When Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he's not saying, the very moment as I speak these words, but he's saying, Something to the effect of um, the time is so pregnant, it's about to give birth. So the time is fulfilled. And the judgment, the fury that's about to be poured out isn't coming for another 40 years. In 40 years, about, what happens? The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., when Titus leads the Roman army against Jerusalem. The slaughter, the plague, the wickedness, the natural disaster that surrounds this time is absolutely astonishing. All of it recorded by Josephus, a Roman historian who was Jewish, who God just places in history to record these events. And I'm not going to get into the details today. There will be a time in the future for that. But... When the Romans destroy the temple, this was the time of wrath, the completion of time, the day of the Lord, the time fulfilled. Daniel 7.22 says, uh, well actually before I tell you what it says and probably before you read it, um, this is a prophecy about a great war-hungry nation that will bring distress to God's people. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, 
And the time came when the saints possessed them. Do you hear these words? Prophesied hundreds of years before. Until the Ancient of Days came, judgment was given for the Most High when the saints possessed the kingdom. When the time came and when the saints possessed the kingdom. So here you have three things that are stated. The time is fulfilled. And you can see that, that judgment is again linked with being fulfilled. It's also a time when, and this is important, when God is coming to be with His people. When the Ancient of Days comes to be with His people. And it is a time when the kingdom is given to the saints as their possession. Is this not exactly what Jesus is saying in Mark 1.15? Again, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. So Jesus is God in the flesh. The Ancient of Days is here among us. He is announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. God in Jesus is establishing the kingdom and giving it to the saints as their possession. This is exactly why Jesus follows with the announcement, the uh, response, repent and believe in the gospel. See, repent relates to a time being fulfilled. The end of an age is among us. The wrath of God is before us. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways. You have not lived in righteousness. You have not lived according to the law. You have shamed God. Would you repent? The word repent is not a momentary thing. It doesn't happen and you're done. It is a state of existence. Jesus is calling the people of Israel to live in this state of existence, of repentance. Live like you have turned from your former ways, that you have renounced them. You're sinful, you're self-reliant, you're proud and angry and lustful ways. Repent before the time of wrath comes upon you and it is too late. Jesus, today, He calls us to live in a state of repentance. We are made new in Christ our Savior. Remember from last week, Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we crucify our flesh. We crucify our pride, our self-reliance, all those things that I've already mentioned. We crucify them on the cross. And this is a state of living in repentance. Crucifying our old selves. Because we no longer are that person. We are new in Christ. We are, creature, we are new creatures. Creatures of the kingdom. Right? Because repentance is nothing unless we have something to turn to. What is it that we turn to? We turn away from our unrighteousness into what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Which Jesus in this proclamation is equating with the gospel. The good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Another term that we use, we just throw it around, the kingdom of God. I'll tell you, it is not a geopolitical nation. The kingdom of God 
as Jesus is referring to it, is not the nation of Israel. So what then is it? These verses up here from Mark 10 are just paraphrases so we can succinctly go through them. Be Bereans and check me on them though. 10.15, to enter the kingdom, you must receive it with the faith of a child. 10.27, only God makes it possible for you to enter the kingdom. 10.31, the first will be last, and the last will be first in the kingdom. 10.43, if you want to be in the If you want to be great in the kingdom, you must be a servant of all. Does this sound geopolitical to you? Does it sound like a nation? No, this is a state of the heart. It is a kingdom where we, the children of God, fully trust our king in the same way that a beloved child trusts his loving father. It is a kingdom where we do not seek to advance ourselves, but we to position others for success and maturity. It's a kingdom where every citizen is a joyful and willing servant of all people and foremost of their God. The kingdom is a state of the heart. In our kingdom, the glory of God and His will is our heartbeat. This is the kingdom of God. But not just this. There are layers. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, it means two things. That at hand, it means both near in time and near in proximity. So in other words, this is amazing. Jesus of Nazareth, when he steps down onto earth, the kingdom of God is making a personal appearance. The kingdom of God is manifest in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So this kingdom that breeds these people, it is established with Christ, listen, as the new covenant. Not a covenant of law. Not a kingdom through geopolitical nation with law and a government. It is a kingdom through relationship. When Jesus steps into the River Jordan to be baptized, when he self-identifies with sinners, everything changes. He is the Israelite to fulfill the law. The last days have arrived. It was the beginning of the end of the age. The age of covenant of law was gone, was over the age of promise, of covenant through Christ began. The age of life with Christ. The age of relationship with our God. Listen to Isaiah 42, verses 6 and verse 9. And this is sort of God speaking to the prophesied Messiah. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Behold, the former things have come to pass. The new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell them to you. At Sinai, God made covenant with his people Israel. And it was a covenant that if they followed the law, all of the law, then God would be their God. 
would be his people. Would have been true if they followed all of the law. But look, Jesus here is being given as the new covenant. Jesus fulfills the law. He, he completes the covenant of law. And now he offers himself as the covenant of promise. It is his life and his life alone that can save any man. Jesus' perfect righteousness fulfills the law so completely and utterly that we need not do anything to try to complete the law, to try to gain God's favor through law. Trust the true Israelite to save us, to give us life and life eternal. We don't cling to the law. We cling to Christ. So with this new covenant, the former things have passed and new things are established. The age of promise through Jesus Christ has begun. Jesus began his salvific work, his work that would lead to our salvation in baptism, when he self-identifies with sinners. He overcomes the devil in the wilderness. He lives out the history of Israel and he brings the gospel in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Speak of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. You can hear it all in that. All that I've been saying you can hear in that. The time is fulfilled The year of the Lord's favor is upon us with the gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, He has come to mend our broken hearts. He says to us who are strangled and bound in captivity, He says there is freedom. And then He plunges into our dark prison. And He breaks our bonds and He opens the doors. This is the new covenant. This is relationship with Jesus Christ. This is freedom. This is life. And these verses from Isaiah also mention a day of vengeance. That it looms ahead. The new age begun with Christ. It means an age is ending necessarily. And I said an age of violence. Or the age is ending violently. It is called the day of vengeance of our God. For those that adhere to the law, a day of vengeance for our God. And the, See, the Jews had the law, right? They had the law. They put their trust in the law. They thought that through the law they could become righteous. And they pathologically broke the law. And they dismembered the law and made it into something else. Something that they leveraged over one another. That, they, that made them look good. They dismembered the law and they made it into a Frankenstein. Something that looked alive, but it was no living thing. It was a monster. And when Messiah came, when Christ came, he offered himself to these people, to all people, to free them from the bondage of the law. And yet they rejected him. They slapped away his hand and they nailed him to the cross. 
the day of vengeance of God came upon the Jews in 70 AD, and the temple was destroyed. Without the temple, the priestly order was useless. Animal sacrifices for forgiveness of sin were over. The place where God was thought to dwell was destroyed. A covenant was upended. An age was over. Another parenthesis. There's this 40-year period where these two ages overlap. This is extremely important for us to understand concerning the end times. Christ comes and he establishes the new covenant. The age of promise, the age of the gospel is established. But the age of the law is not ended until the temple falls fully. So you have this 40-year period, give or take, where these two ages coexist. Understanding this gives you much insight into what is going on in the Bible. Certainly, there are plenty of mysteries and things that I would say, I have no idea what that's talking about, but it really does help us understand what some of those things are talking about. Okay, that parenthesis is closed. As for the kingdom being near in time, uh, it, it was, in one sense, uh, immediately revealed in Jesus Christ. Like I said, the kingdom personal appearance in Jesus Christ, so it was immediate. When Christ says the kingdom is at hand, it's immediate. In another sense, the kingdom being offered to all people is not. So remember in Daniel 7.22, it says the saints would possess the kingdom when the time is fulfilled. So all who repent and believe in the gospel, all who respond as Jesus proclaims, are those that enter the kingdom of God. As a necessary conclusion, you must draw from Jesus' proclamation, repent and believe in the gospel, and then, through repentance and believing, we both possess the kingdom and become the kingdom. Not only is, the righteous, is, is it Christ's righteousness that gives us life and entrance into the kingdom of God. Not only does the Holy Spirit of Christ dwell within us, not only are we doing the will of the Father in the kingdom, but those in the kingdom are to be spreading the rule and reign of Christ throughout the whole world. And that idea, I'm going to mostly leave here, because we're going to come back to it real strong next week, when when Jesus calls his first disciples and he tells them to be fishers of men. So we know that the kingdom is supposed to go out through us. The kingdom goes out. We know that if we've been a believer for 10 days or 10 years or 100 years, we know that the will of God is not perfectly done in our lives, right? You might feel like if I'm saying that the kingdom of God is in part in you, you might say in me. I know my sins. So there is this sense in which the kingdom of God is very real and among us right now. And there's a sense in which it is still to come. See, God works through hiddenness. God has veiled himself. 
Right? We can't see him face to face. Even Christ, when he walked the earth, he was the exact representation of God, and yet he was still veiled, except for those brief moments on the Mount of Transfiguration. And our kingdom, the kingdom that we are part of, God's kingdom, is veiled, is, is hidden. It is truly here, but it's not fully here. But there will be a day when Christ is fully revealed to us and we will see Him face to face. And on that day, the kingdom of God will be fully realized. The people of the kingdom will perfectly do the will of the Father and the earth will be redeemed. And He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And the kingdom is fully Revealed. Christ, Jesus Christ, fully fulfilled the law perfectly. He fully lives the history of Israel perfectly. He is the true Israelite. And because of this, because of that reality, he is the completion to Israel. He is the pivot on which the ages shift. The gospel that Jesus brings, the gospel of the kingdom, brings an an end to the age of the law. And it forces every human being to make a decision. Will we repent from our self-reliant ways and believe in him? Will we trust in Jesus, that he loves us, that he has forgiven us, that us and to carry us through the worst circumstances to give us eternal life? Will we accept that kind of relationship with Jesus? Will we believe that His righteousness was enough to fulfill the law? Or will we try to do things in, in what we think is righteousness or good enough to please God? How many people say, I'm a good person? Will we trust Christ as the good person and that his righteousness fulfills the law? Will we trust the age of law is over? We need not live in it anymore and the age of promise is here. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. You open everything to us, Father, as your children. Give us the kingdom to possess. God, how we long to do your will and see your will be done all over this earth as it is done perfectly in heaven. While we long for the day when your kingdom is fully realized. But thank you for this day in which your kingdom is truly realized in us. Help us to no longer live in an age of law. No longer try to please you with our actions. But know that you're already pleased with us because of Christ. Because of our trust in him.
Lord, more and more show us what it means to have crucified ourselves and to live in Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. We thank you, Father. We trust in you. We pray that your kingdom come. Your will be done all over this earth. In Jesus' name.